Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering a podcast by, well, it seems to be a secular philosopher who runs the podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Today's episode is called Back to the Future, Foreknowledge and Predestination, in which the author of this podcast takes kind of a Molinistic view. And even uh, if you look down at his further reading, he references a William Lane Craig article on the topic. And so let's listen to his setup of the issues, his discussion of the issues, and see if they make sense. See if he's not using logical fallacies to get to his conclusion. Back to the future. Foreknowledge and predestination. Suppose you and I are arguing about the outcome of an upcoming election. I think that candidate A will prevail over candidate B, and I have good reasons for my view. All the polls suggest that candidate A has an insurmountable lead, and candidate B is manifestly unfit for office. So let's talk real quick about this scenario he's setting up. There's two people, and they're predicting an outcome of an election. So, and he's referencing, he's alluding to the U.S. election in which Hillary Clinton ran against Trump and Trump won. And there was a massive upset because all the polls predicted that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Uh, 80%, 90% odds in her favor. Even the betting markets reflected this. There was 8-1 to one odds against Trump, against Trump. And then it turns out they were all wrong. If they were all right, let's just pretend, for example, they're all right. Hillary Clinton was elected. I would say, I'd say, yes, these people knew Hillary Clinton was going to win because all the evidence pointed towards that outcome, that eventuality. Let's say, alternatively, Trump wins, as actually happened, and some guy steps forward and he says, I predicted Trump would win. Well, how did you know that? Well, because a magical talking frog told me. Hmm, okay, okay. So is, is that knowledge of the future? You know, you and I, when we use the word knowledge, usually we're referring to justified true belief. And so some guy getting knowledge from a magical talking frog I wouldn't uh, push in the realm of a very credible belief. I wouldn't put it in the realm of a justified true belief. So even though the guy turned out to be right, that his prediction was accurate, I wouldn't call that knowledge. But you and I, normally we can have knowledge of the future. I am going to go to work tomorrow. That's knowledge of the future. I go to work tomorrow. I talk to people about it and said, hey, I knew I was going to come to work today. And no one's going to take that sentence and say, no, oh, you can't know the future. You didn't know if you're going to get in a car accident or if the world was going to end in a fiery apocalypse before you got to work that day. You didn't actually know that. No, because when you and I, when we talk about knowledge, it's just justified true belief. And that true belief is uh, verified after the fact. So if I say I have knowledge of the future and then it happens and it's justified evidence why I believe that, no one's going to dispute that I knew the future. So you're going to hear a lot of conflation of terms, uh, moving the goalposts, so to speak, equivocation, where this author of this podcast wants to use knowledge in one sense and then use knowledge in the other sense. And you'll hear him flipping between the two. The common definition of knowledge, where I know I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and then the philosophical definition of knowledge, where the knowledge has to be based on objects, where the knowledge has to meet something that exists. The knowledge can't be of things that don't exist or don't have to come true. And so watch for that. Those are the conflations of terms. That's the first logical fallacy, equivocation. And let's hear how he handles this example. You, however, insist that candidate B may just spring a surprise victory. 
When the vote is held, candidate B does indeed win the election. In addition to my dismay at the outcome, I must shoulder the additional burden of admitting that you were right and I was wrong. Or perhaps not. I might say to you, look, when you predicted the outcome of the election, the result was still open. The voters still had the capacity to choose between both candidates. So it cannot already have been true then that candidate B would win. That only became true once the election was actually held. So in fact, when you and I were having our argument, neither of us was right because there was as yet no truth of the matter. So look at this. So this scenario, this hypothetical is now, it started with uh, knowledge of the future, that how you and I know the future. I know I'm going to go work tomorrow. And now it's switched over to this object-based knowledge where the knowledge has to be, represent something that actually exists. Yes, in that sense, the future does not exist. The biblical position is the future does not exist, that that type of knowledge actually exists. There's, there's no future event by which to bounce off knowledge so that it's an object-based knowledge. Instead, when we look at the Bible, we look at how God operates, it's always a contingency. God knows the future because he makes it happen, but he will change his mind based on events as they unfold. And no one's going to disclaim that type of knowledge, except for philosophers when they want to try to enforce their idiosyncratic ideas of what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes uh, contradictions, what constitutes contingency. When they want to introduce those issues into the debate, that's when you see this conflation of terms. And it's really a masking strategy. It's a way to make determinism more palatable. But yes, if you're using the object-based knowledge in this scenario, neither person was right. But you have to use an idiosyncratic definition of knowledge in order to really posit that. Now please excuse me while I look into the rules for acquiring Canadian citizenship. Since you are a faithful listener of this podcast, my argument will probably remind you of a passage in Aristotle. I covered it a mere 241 episodes ago, so you probably remember it quite well. But just in case, here's a recap. In the ninth chapter of his logical work on interpretation, Aristotle presents an argument for determinism using the example of a sea battle. The argument goes that if it is now true that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, then the sea battle's occurrence is already guaranteed. So there's no point deliberating about whether to fight the battle. The present truth shows that it is already settled that it will happen. Worse still, the same pattern of argument can be used for any future event. Since there are present truths about all the things that will happen in the future, all things will happen necessarily. Of course, this conclusion will be unproblematic for certain cases. No one will mind it being true now, and thus unavoidable, that 1 plus 1 will still equal 2 tomorrow, and Aristotle, at least, would have no objection to saying that the sun will necessarily rise tomorrow. The argument is disturbing only when it comes to what philosophers call future contingents, that is, future events that seem as though they may or may not happen. And so notice the problem here is being introduced again, and it all boils down to this conflation of the different types of knowledge. You know, I can know things about the future, even though those, those future things may or may not happen, and we only verify my knowledge is accurate in retrospect after those events happen, and based on the reasons why I believe those things would happen. That, that's how we know if my knowledge was accurate or not. But what he's going for here is 100% fatalistic, deterministic 
knowledge that the event will happen. In the Aristotle example, they know a sea battle will occur. It will if, if it will, no matter what, occur, there's no contingency. It, there's nothing to talk about. You can't call it a contingent event. If it will, no kidding, definitely occur. So the contingency that's being introduced is just trying to trying to make it more palatable, this determinism, and say, yeah, things might happen, might not happen, but they'll definitely happen, but there was contingency where they might not have happened. Really? There was contingency? Or is that just an illusion? If I program a robot, and I program it to chop wood, and it has arms and legs and a head, and it chops wood, and that's the only thing it's programmed to do. It's not programmed to plant flowers. And you go see a lumberjack, lumberjack and he's out there chopping wood and then he decides to pick up flowers and plant them and you say well the lumberjack he looks like a person and uh, the robot over here looks like a person therefore the robot although the robot's chopping wood has the contingency that he could plant flowers well no that's an illusion based on your false perception of reality and introducing that contingency where there's no room for contingency is just you just misunderstanding the data and so if there's an event that's determined to happen, that it absolutely will happen no matter what, nothing's going to stop it. It will happen. There's no contingency not to happen. So if God knows the future, and this is the time travel problem, the time travel paradox, if God knows the future, can he change the future? If he can change the future, then he didn't know the future, did he? But if he can't change the future then that event is determined to happen. There's no way around it. There's no contingency in it. And so you can't have your cake and eat it too. Molinism doesn't get by the problem. It still fails for the same reason that all divine future foreknowledge fails. Either determinism has to be true or the future it doesn't exist. The future is open. And you can't know the future in the Platonistic sense in which there's object-based knowledge that things are definitely going to happen. Like the outcome of an election or the waging of a sea battle. As Aristotle points out, these future contingents are exactly the things we ponder and deliberate about, as if more than one option were still open. And remember, that's just an illusion. If things will happen in the future, that means they cannot not happen. There's no contingency in the event. Even though you claim there's contingency, even though you say, oh, I'm eating cereal for breakfast, but I could have picked something else. No, if my event, if I had to eat cereal for breakfast, there's no contingency in that. Even though you're under the illusion because you've experienced previous situations when people have eaten other things, that it doesn't follow. You're just projecting onto the situation and you're muddying the waters with data that's not relevant. If something is destined, fated to happen, it's determinism. If it can't be undone, if it can't be subverted, there's no contingency in that act. It is not entirely clear how Aristotle intended to avoid the problem, but in the 14th century, it was generally accepted that his solution was simply to deny that there are present truths about future contingents. We find this in Occam's commentary on Aristotle's uninterpretation, for instance. This is the response I just proposed taking in the example of the election. Before an election is held, there is no truth one way or another about its outcome, since that outcome remains open. But the medievals could not easily take this simple way out. If there are no present truths about future contingents, then it would seem that God cannot know the future. 
Yeah, so that is true. If you're using truth and knowledge in the sense that it's object-based and the thing has to exist, if there is known truths about future events in the Platonic sense of knowledge, yeah, then the future is not contingent. It's determined. And if the future is not determined, then there's no future truth values using the Platonistic definition of knowledge and truth. Using the normal people, you and I, how we talk about knowledge and truth, yeah, there are future contingent truths, but those truths don't have to happen, and they're only retrospectively evaluated. And that's, that, that's how human beings, we categorize our world, we make sense of our world. We allow leeway in uh, our definitions of knowledge, of, of facts, of truth. We, we allow wiggle room, and it's just our way of coping with the data that we experience. But uh, when you enter the realm of philosophy and metaphysics and these metaphysical debates, the philosophers want their cake and eat it too. So they'll flip between their special definitions of words and then common uses of the words and just uh, kind of muddy the waters, uh, conflate the two terms. And then uh, in, in that way, they could, they could uh, purport their own views, the William Lane Craigs of the worlds, purporting Molinism, even though Molinism doesn't solve the time travel paradox. And admitting this would mean denying his omniscience. Actually, the Parisian scholastic Peter Auriol did stick to what he took to be Aristotle's solution here, arguing that God's knowing in advance what we will do would render our actions necessary. But he was the exception. Most philosophers of the period felt the need to explain how God can know what will happen without rendering future events necessary. A traditional solution was to follow the late ancient thinker Boethius. He proposed that the way in which God knows things might be different from the way those things are in themselves. Thus, God could eternally know things that happen in time, and necessarily know things that are contingent. Thomas Aquinas adopted a version of this response to the problem, explaining that the contingency of things has to do with the contingency of their immediate causes not any uncertainty or contingency in God's ultimate causation or in his knowledge. Thus, the voters, in their limited wisdom, would contingently determine that candidate B wins the election, whereas God, in his infinite wisdom, would have eternal and necessary knowledge of this outcome. Right, so that's just muddying the waters, it's conflating terms, and it's, it's not adding anything new to the conversation. If God eternally knew what the voters would choose, there's no contingency in it. Could God have used his knowledge of the future to affect that so that that future didn't materialize? If no, determinism is true. If yes, then God didn't know the future. There's no way around this paradox. Anytime that you are introducing this Platonistic knowledge of the future, this Platonistic truth values of future events, you're introducing this fallacy. And does he talk about this at all in this his podcast? Does he deal with the time travel paradox in his podcast called Back to the Future? You know, that's a reference to a famous uh, time travel movie. The answer is he doesn't. He doesn't deal with this. And uh, maybe this is a way for him to have cognitive dissonance and accept his Molinism, where he doesn't have to deal with this very acute problem for his position that he advocates in this very podcast. But in the early 14th century, this view came under fire. It was rejected by Duns Scotus, for example, and also by William of Ockham's teacher, Henry of Harclay, who insisted that God's perfect knowledge must involve knowing things as they are. 
We may use immaterial psychological powers to grasp a stone, yet we grasp the stone as material. In the same way, God can be said to know all things necessarily, but know the contingent things as contingent. What contingencies? Can things be other than what they are? Because if no, then uh, God can't have... If, if they can't, then determinism is true. If yes, then, you know, then the future's open. It was open for thinkers in this generation to abandon the Boethian solution because of the new advances made by Scotus in thinking about possibility. Remember that for him, a freely choosing agent, whether human or divine, can choose to do a certain thing, while in that same moment retaining the possibility of choosing differently. Even as I stand in the ballot box putting down my vote for A, there is an unrealized yet still real possibility that I vote for B. When we looked at Scotus's theory of possibility, we thought about it in this context of divine and human freedom, but it's obviously relevant to the problem of future contingents too. The reason that I can be free to choose B even while choosing A is that for Scotus, something remains possible or contingent so long as it implies nothing contradictory. Clearly, no contradiction follows from supposing that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, nor does a contradiction follow from supposing that there will be no sea battle tomorrow. Yeah, okay, there's a definite contradiction in a sea battle will definitely happen no matter what versus the claim that a sea battle will not happen. Those two are mutually exclusive. There is a discrepancy there. There's no contingency. There's no contingency. And any, any attempt to muddy up the waters is just doing that. It's conflating terms in what attempt? What are you gaining? You're building these conceptualization models that don't quite fit the data. And to do that, you have to conflate terms. You have to use equivocation. And you, you can't... You can't deal with the issues uh, straight on. Thus, both are possible. In light of this, Scotus can and does resolve the problem by saying that, when it is presently true that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, it remains possible that there will not be a sea battle. Right, then it can't be presently true that there will be if it's, there's a possibility that there won't be. It's, it's the time traveler paradox. Just as my choice of A doesn't make it impossible that I choose B, a proposition about the future can be true while possibly being false. But one thing about determinists is... That so yeah, I just wonder, did he prove what he said? Is, is that, does that even make sense? That if a sea battle is fated to happen no matter what, it is true that it will happen tomorrow, that there's contingency that it might not have happened? Does that even make conceptual sense? It doesn't. It doesn't flow. And he hasn't proved his point. He's just declaring it. And it's just a mechanism. It's a cognitive dissident. They are very determined. They will stubbornly insist that the problem is not really yet resolved by arguing that past events are necessary. And this makes sense. There, there's other models of the past, too. So presentism is the idea that the only thing that exists is the now. And past events don't exist. They're not objects to base, objective-based knowledge off of. Yeah, you can have knowledge of the past in, in the sense that I have knowledge that I'm going to go to the future or I, that I have knowledge I'm going to go to work tomorrow in the future. So I can have knowledge of the future in the same sense that I have knowledge of the past, but the past does not exist. It's not objects that I can bounce knowledge off in the same way that the present is happening in the same way that I know I exist and talking right now on a camera, right? 
And so there's different models of the past, and he's just proposing one of, of several. And does it, does it hold? What are you saying? If an election has already been held and produced a clear result, we don't argue about what the outcome was, though we might disagree about why the voters chose as they did. And no one deliberates about whether to have a sea battle yesterday. Past events are not open, but decided or determined, so it is natural to think that they are necessary. Or they don't exist to be a truth value, but he doesn't explore that option. The reason this is problematic is that if we admit against Aristotle and Peter Ariel that there are present truths. It's important to keep in mind that all these systems that he's proposing are just conceptualizations, way to rationalize what we see around us, this data. And so just pretending that our rationalizations, that our categories that we introduce into this discussion, just pretending that they, they mirror reality, that uh, objects must have contingency and potentiality and actuality and necessity. And just, just assuming these categories onto these objects is just a way for us to make sense of the data. And it in no way affects reality. That's an important point that uh, philosophers, they, they get so lost in their metaphysics, they think that their metaphysics can affect reality. They don't. Things, things happen, right? Things happen. It's not based on potentiality and actuality and God is pure actuality. And, it, it, and he spawned potentiality through this Platonistic dissensions. And it's, it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. It's, it's, it's what people come up with to make sense with the world around them. And really, yeah, really, how, how do we gain knowledge? How does our knowledge function? It, it functions by using interrelations of related concepts and piecing them together and trying to make sense of the world in, in a way that it's predictable, that the data coming through is consistent, that we could predict the future with our past data. And th that's how we experience reality. That's how we deal with reality. And so when these philosophers, they get on their high horse to talk about the fundamental metaphysics of the universe, it's all, it's all speculation. And I don't give it too much credit. About the future, then how can we resist thinking that there were also past truths about the future? Just as it is true now that a sea battle will occur tomorrow, so it was already true yesterday that the sea battle will occur tomorrow. So if everything in the past is necessary, the truth of this proposition is necessary after all. Yeah, I don't think everything in the past is necessary. And on, you know, the categories we already talked about, how they're arbitrary categories, they don't have to exist. The past doesn't have to exist. The past doesn't have to be an object which we base objective-based knowledge off of. And everything could be contingency, right? And it could all be in flux. And we could be living in ever-changing now. And that's how we experience reality. That's how we experience life. And that's, that's how logic works, that uh, the cause of an event precedes the event and not vice versa. You don't get the time traveler paradox where I'm my own grandpa that I spawn myself into existence. And we have that entire episode on time travel movies going over the various problems that time travel introduces into logic, into the flow of action, into and the paradoxes, the logical fallacies, the logical problems that time travel knowledge of the future any time you have some sort of uh, effect preceding the cause anytime you get into there you get into those paradoxes where it just doesn't work it breaks down internally 
And the same thing's true with any type of Platonistic knowledge, any type of Platonistic truth about the future. Same paradoxes occur. And Molinism hasn't solved the problem. This guy hasn't solved the problem. To avoid this problem, the scholastics extended the new theory of possibility even to facts about the past. They said that, in general, truths may be either determinate or indeterminate, meaning that they may or may not exclude their contraries. Thus, for instance, the statement, there will be a sea battle on Monday, is indeterminately true, since it is true even though it could have been false. By contrast, the statement 1 plus 1 equals 2 is determinately true. It is true and can never be false. In a reminder of the value of anonymous material from the scholastic tradition, this idea is first found in a manuscript of unknown authorship. And in a reminder of the value of identified but fairly obscure medieval thinkers, it is embraced by such non-household names as Arnold of Strelly and Richard Kamsel. So let's talk real quick about abstract truths versus material facts. He says it's, it's a necessary fact that the sun will rise tomorrow. Is that true? Is that true? Can God not just destroy the sun tonight if he wanted to? I would say yes, he could do that. And it's not a necessary truth that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. And if we invented some sort of atom bomb that's powerful enough to take out the sun, we could stop the sun from rising tomorrow. Any type time you get into these uh, actual events, everything's contingent, right? There's no such thing as necessary events or anything like that. But when you get into the abstract, the 1 plus 1 equals 2. Well, that's an axiom of logic. That uh, Just the basic axioms of logic that we could go over, that uh, something must equal itself. Something cannot be true and false at the same time in the same sense. You know, these, these basic axioms, laws of logic, and these are abstract. And it's, it's important not to confuse abstract laws of logic, axioms that we deal with, it's, it's important not to conflate those with actual events that we experience, material happenings where that involve material arrangements of items. No, there's no, no material event that happens by necessity. Oh. According to this way of thinking, even truths about the past can be indeterminate, which is often expressed by saying that despite being true, they can always have been false. Applying this to God's knowledge, we can say that... So notice this heavy reliance on object-based knowledge of the, fa of the past and object-based knowledge of the future. That, that's not how we have knowledge. That's not uh, how we function in our day-to-day -day lives. Even our knowledge of the past is a little bit sketchy. You say, oh, I know this happened, and you view the video, and it might not quite happen in the way that you remembered. But, you know, people can have knowledge of the past. They can recall things from the past. And we do claim that is knowledge, even though their knowledge might not be 100% accurate. God knows that candidate B will win the election. Since this is a contingent event, God's knowledge still leaves it possible that candidate A will win, and even possible that it could always have been true that candidate A would win, despite the fact that, as it happens, this is and has always been false. All of this is just a spelling out of what it means for something to be true, but contingently or indeterminately true, rather than necessarily true. And these are Platonistic definitions of truth and knowledge to keep in mind, not just our normal vernacular when we use those words. Surprisingly, one of the most sophisticated treatments of this issue is found in William of Ockham. 
In his treatise On Predestination, he sets out the implications of his voluntarism for the problem of divine foreknowledge. Like Scotus and others, he argues that God can know something to be true without its contrary being impossible, so that the truth he knows could never have been true. Admittedly, we do say that God necessarily has knowledge of everything, but it is only necessary that he knows without what he knows being necessary. As Occam puts it, for example, God knows that this person will be saved, is true, and yet it is possible that he will never have known that this person will be saved. And so that proposition is immutable and is nevertheless not necessary, but contingent. Right, this is just a facade. So if someone is known that he will never be saved, how is there a contingency that he could be saved? Right, so how how do you introduce that? How do you prove that that is a possibility or is that just, and like my robot example, something that we're, we're projecting onto the scenario without any evidence of the fact. We're just using our prior experience with other objects and projecting our feelings on the data that we're observing. But what about the problem that if propositions were already true in the past, they will be necessarily true because the past is necessary? Occam concedes that, in general, past things are necessary but he denies that there are necessary past truths about future things. It is misleading to say that if it was true yesterday that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, then the truth about the sea battle is a fact about the way things were in the past. Rather, it was a fact about the future, and remains so until the sea battle occurs. This solves the problem because, as we've just seen, facts about the future are contingent. Someone might raise a different worry here. Suppose that God knows in advance that I will vote for candidate A. According to Occam, God's knowing this leaves it still possible that I vote for candidate B. I still have free will as to which I will choose. Do you? Do you? Where is your evidence of that? But then it looks as if it is in my power to make God be wrong. It is open for me to act in a way contrary to what he predicts. This objection, thinks Occam, is a mistake. God knows I will vote for candidate A, since this is how I will choose. But if I were to choose candidate B, then God would always have known this instead. He compares the objection to denying that when Socrates is sitting, it is possible for Socrates to be standing. Of course it is possible for Socrates to be standing now even when he's sitting. What is impossible is that he be standing on the assumption that he is sitting. That is, that he be sitting and standing at the same time. Right, so this this is why it's important. All these examples from these ancient philosophers, they don't they don't understand cause and effect. That the the cause has to precede the effect and not vice versa. If you have a knowledge of something that's going to be true in the future, you have the effect before the cause and it creates the time travel paradox. And none of these ancient philosophers dealt with the problem accurately. And the great ways to conceptualize these problems are actually found in, in uh, movies, movies which explore time travel and time travel concepts. Can someone go into the past and kill their own father? Uh, you know, Back to the Future, the, the movie that's actually referenced in this podcast that's never discussed and the paradox is never discussed. Can Marty McFly go into the past and erase his own existence such that he didn't exist to travel into the past? Can God know the future and then subvert the future that he knows will happen? If not, fatalism is true. 
that there are events eternally known that can never be changed. There's no contingency there. And nothing this guy has said so far has, has convinced me that knowledge of the future, platonic knowledge, just not our normal knowledge. That's very important to keep emphasizing that this is all based on platonic knowledge. And so when we say <clears throat> biblically that God has knowledge of the future, it's not Platonistic knowledge. It's normal knowledge that you and I use in our normal vernacular where I know I'm going to go to work tomorrow because uh, all the evidence points to it. I have the power to make it happen and it will happen. I'll put money on it and I'll win the bet because it will happen. There's knowledge of the future there. But yeah, does God have Platonistic knowledge of the future? If he does, fatalism is true. If he doesn't, the future is open and he doesn't and he can still know the future in the way that we know the future. So it is with God's knowledge. It's possible that he knows I will choose A, and possible that he knows I will choose B, because either option is possible for me. No, it's not. It's not possible. It's not possible. You haven't shown that it is possible, especially with eternally determined scenarios that can't be otherwise. What is not possible is that God knows I will choose B, while also knowing that I will choose A. With these distinctions, Scotus, Occam, and the other 14th century voluntarists have offered a powerful and, in fact, I think, correct solution to the age-old dilemma of... So, yeah, so I'm not, in this podcast, I'm not arguing necessarily with those, those ancient philosophers because he really endorses this view that he's describing. And so my, my issues is with his understanding of the issues. And he doesn't consider what he's doing, his, his sleights of hands, his uh, changing word definitions halfway through arguments. His, his insistence on idiosyncratic definitions of knowledge, of truth, and his uh, unwillingness to consider the time travel paradoxes and unwillingness to consider presentism and th those types of views. And he really seems to be a big fan of William Lane Craig. You know, I understand that. He's trendy, and he sounds, with, with all this flowery language, this obfuscation, this uh, introducing things that are irrelevant into the debate, it makes it sound a lot nicer and it makes it sound oh so scholarly. And so it's the fun popular position to take, but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't deal with the data. It doesn't deal with the issues that are actually created. So we are about 35 minutes in. We're going to have to cut the podcast off there. The next part of the podcast, he does talk about uh, more of uh, theology, more of God's knowledge of the future, but uh, that's about all we got time for now. It's uh, bedtime here. So you got any questions, comments on this podcast, send it to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.